Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Just a warning, there is reference to pregnancy loss and infertility in this episode, so please take care whilst listening. Hello and welcome back to The Midpoint. My guest today very rightly questioned whether she was old enough to be on this podcast, being she's still in her late 30s. And although that does technically put her at the very beginning of middle age, questioning things is in her nature. And it's a big part of why she's so good at her job. Emma Barnett is a journalist, broadcaster and the host of BBC Radio 4's Woman's Hour. And I wanted to hear from someone who is right on the edge of the midpoint. And I knew that Emma would be frank about what it feels like to be entering this next phase of life, especially as a new mum who presents the longest running women's programme in the world. Emma has also been really open about her fertility treatments, miscarriage and living with endometriosis. And someone else who knows a lot about women's health is our expert guest today, GP Dr. Nigat Arif. Today, I want to talk to Dr. Arif specifically about thyroid issues, something that becomes more prevalent as we get older and affects women significantly more than men in midlife. But right now, let's meet Emma. Emma Barnett, it is so good to see you and great to have you on The Midpoint. Thank you so much for agreeing to come along in spite of the fact you are just at the very precipice, the very edge of the start of the, of the midlife experience, which you were keen to point out to me. <laughs> I was, although you've disabused me now of that, uh, that view I had, which I was nowhere near the midpoint. But thank you for that, Gavin. <laughs> I love the way you replied to me and you said, you do know I'm 38 years old. And um, <laughs> I said, yes, you can join Jessica Ennis-Hill because she's also been on here at that age, and which is great company to keep. I think you'll agree. Gabby, um, you're one of those women I want to do what you, you ask and say. I think we all should do a bit more what Gabby Logan asks. And if Jessica Ennis-Hill is good enough, I am nowhere near good enough. So there we are. Well, for you to say that, Emma Barnett, is quite quite the compliment. When I uh, <laughs> mentioned to some good friends I was speaking to you today, you know, there was just a huge loving and respect. And, you know, you have this uh, incredible resonance with with women. I mean, presenting Women's Hour is obviously a good place to start, isn't it, in terms of connecting with women and the topics that you talk about, obviously, are well thought through in terms of how they relate to the modern woman and the world that, that we live in. When you were asked to present Women's Hour, and take over such a, a historic, important, landmark piece of broadcasting. I mean, you moved from another one, from Newsnight. But when you were asked that, what did you hope to bring to it? And how did you want to move it further forwards into the kind of agenda that you have done today? I very much felt that Women's Hour had done a, you know, a, an excellent job at reflecting women's lives and their lens on the world and... Um, and at that point, you know, for sort of 75 years in its form that it, that it was in, um, although it had changed in that time, it had changed time of day, it had changed actually the amount of time. Um, so there had been changes over the years. But I was very much focused on having the, uh, a reactive programme as much as a planned programme. So it's a live show. I love live broadcasting. Anything can happen. You know that, Gabby. And I like the idea that we could use it as a way of seeing what was going on that day. So there was very much 
more emphasis for me from that. I wanted to bring exclusives uh, to that, which is very much my news background. So the first interview with somebody potentially who had just done something for the first time, maybe as a woman or had been in an extraordinary circumstance um, and found themselves perhaps in a very difficult place and, and talk first to us because it's that place that you can do that. I also wanted to bring accountability to you know, the issues and the people who are in charge of women's lives. And some of them are women, of course, but not, not, not a lot of them are sometimes. Um, so I, I, I had a few strands I was thinking about. And I also wanted to hear from the listeners, you know, make sure we prioritise the text message console, the, the different ways of getting in touch. You can now leave a voice note. There, there was sort of making sure it was as two-way as possible because I also find I get some of my best questions and insights from the listeners as I am on air. So there were a few elements of it being live. And for me, because women's lives are getting closer, I would say, to everything that they would like them to be, but they're not there yet. And certainly some women and certain socioeconomic groups and different backgrounds are far further than they should be from that. But trying to not put us in a box was important as well. It, it's that's that point you make is really interesting because it's it's easy sometimes to forget how far women's lives have come because there do appear to be so many things that still need addressing, not least violence towards women and um, women's health issues, which you have shone a spotlight on quite a lot and have, have pointed out some of the the vagaries perhaps that you would look at men's illnesses that maybe have had more attention uh, over the years because the medical profession being you know historically. Uh, predominantly uh, male and looking at things through a male kind of prism, if you like, um, sometimes and putting more research and emphasis on those diseases, would you say? Is that is that an area that has has particularly captured your imagination? I mean, I think that when you are, I mean, I have something called endometriosis, I have something called adenomyosis, and I thought I was quite well educated and well read on uh, certainly things that I had come across to do with women's health. And, I, you know, it took till I was 31 to be diagnosed with one of those conditions. It took till I was 36 to be diagnosed with adenomyosis. But they're broadly uh, conditions that we don't have a cure for. Millions of women are suffering from. And I hadn't really ever heard of them properly until I was diagnosed with one of them and then two of them. So, yes, I've had that in my mind for some time. And, you know, I'm grappling with the reality of that right now. Um, yes, there's been a go the government, uh, the UK government have set up a women's health task force. There's been, uh, you know, efforts to to try and shine a light and awareness raise. How much change there's been on the ground, especially in light of doctor strikes, in light of the pandemic, you know, the reality meets the aspiration is, is very much where I think we are. Um, do I think there's malintent with it? Not a, not a lot of the time, but do I think there's the focus nowhere near as much as there should be? It's not until you're entrenched in something, is it, that you start to understand a bit more about the history of kind of how we got to that place. And obviously, I don't think everybody will necessarily know what endometriosis involves. And I, I certainly didn't until I started listening to your conversations. And um, I think Naga has talked as well um, a lot on her show about it. Um, and if you haven't experienced it, you know, I don't think you can imagine how crippling that the pain can be, how it can affect your life on a, on a daily basis. It's a bit like we'll go into it, IVF, which I also went through until you're in those kind of holes, if you like, you know, and you start researching and you start experiencing it. You, you don't understand the, the full picture. So tell our listeners who don't know what endometriosis does to your daily experience. 
Okay, so endometriosis is a condition where um, tissue that's like womb-like tissue that should be, um, you know, leaving the body is actually staying within the body, attaching itself. And, and, you know, the hallmark of it is pain. That's what I always say. And it it can be pain, sexual pain. It can be pain in the run-up to a period, during a period, the whole time. For me personally, it affects women slightly differently. Um, I only get about four good days a month at the moment. So where I'm not walking around with what I would describe as uh, bone grinding pain, you know, where sort of my whole body feels the way I've tried to come up with a way of describing it, because I think one of the issues is we're not very good at describing pain, women or men. It's hard to put words to. There have been lots of studies on this, actually. But I describe it as like, you know, one of those, an apple corer, a metal implement in the centre of my body, coring it out right through down my legs and my legs that could have felt fine in the gym, I'm trying to do the gym, Gabby, you should be happy, uh, that could have felt fine in the gym sort of two hours ago. It's kind of like when the pain begins, I describe it like Independence Day, the, the sort of darkness starts to come over my head and this pain just begins and nothing touches it, really. And and does the pain, um, does it come on through, you know, any particular um, action or anything that you've done? I mean, you, there's nothing that you can kind of measure it by. Well, it used to be in the week up to the period and then the period would come and I find menstrual cramps a breeze. This is what's hilarious. Some, you know, some women that's, that's very difficult. It's very hard. At least I know what they are and at least they feel quite familiar mm. and they end. There's a beginning of it. The period starts. And there's an end. Um, my period is a bit like a release when it actually arrives. But now since having my second child, which I'm very fortunate to have been able to have, um, I now have pain through ovulation and there's a run up to that. So there's a bit of a rhythm. But I'm trying to learn it at the moment again, post-having was one, one of the things that I'd heard, I had a friend who had experienced endometriosis and had trouble getting pregnant, was that that would all potentially go away once she'd had her first baby. And it didn't, obviously. I know. There's, there are these things that you cling to, like islands in the mist. Uh, and one of them is for me that when I had a laparoscopy, which is actually the only way you can still be officially diagnosed, which is a, a keyhole surgery procedure, um, I thought after having that, the symptoms would get better. They didn't. I then thought I would get pregnant naturally. I didn't. Uh, and then I had the first baby uh, after IVF and the pain came back with a vengeance post breastfeeding ending. And then I had six more rounds of IVF and it will perhaps touch on that. And then it's worse than ever post breastfeeding. So I'm really sad. I'm not one of those women and I am so happy for those women. I'm very jealous uh, who are in that boat. But um, I never went into pregnancy thinking it would get rid of it, actually. I, I'm probably quite cynical now. Mm, and you, you said you've been suffering since you were a teenager, pretty much since you first started having periods, or at least yes. a few years in. And the, the memo I got, which, you know, my mother had uh, the same memo I think my grandmother had, uh, was, you know, I was one of the unlucky ones where it was just, you know, I, I was on the netball team and I would then find it hard to play, for instance, that week or, you know, whatever it was I was meant to be doing, life would come a little bit to a halt. And it's a it's a disease that gets worse. So it's 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 got worse over the years. Is that why you didn't get the diagnosis until you were in your 30s? Or is there a problem in terms of diagnosis? Because you mentioned the laparoscopy. Yes. Yeah, so I, um, I took the pill during my 20s, the contraceptive pill, and having not been able to tolerate it and not been very good on any hormonal contraception, um, I did find one which was just about bearable. The, the main side effect seemed to be 
Uh, I couldn't hold my drink very well. And I would say this was the high point of my drinking career in my 20s, coming up as a journalist uh, and also being at university. So not the greatest side effect, but we won't dwell on that. And what that did was it masked the barbarity of what was really going on in my body. And, And doctors would describe it as it helped. But actually, once I then stopped and started trying for a baby, and I'd always had a very bad feeling about trying for a baby, I, I knew something wasn't right in me quite quite deeply. And my husband said, oh, for God's sake, don't be like that. You know, it's going to be all right. And, you know, one year went by, two years goes by, and I'm, I came to a complete stop on a holiday with that period, that time, and I was just on my knees and said, something's not right. And my friend ha- said to me, happens to be a gynecologist, I think you've got endometriosis when I describe the symptoms. Mm. And, and that was led me down that road. And did it help having a diagnosis? It's such a great question because I think knowledge is power. You know, as a journalist, I really like it when people are well informed. I think that's what one of the reasons I try to be so fastidious about facts and about information it's been a mixed bag being informed. Yes, I probably would have had to have been by now because there were problems. So just on a practical level, yes. On another level, I've reached the end of the road with it. The next stop is a hysterectomy. Mm. It's pain management or hysterectomy. And a hysterectomy comes with its own complications. Exactly. And that's definitely not um, where I should go at this point for me. Um, It's also, I really want to say to anybody who thinks that is the next stop, that's just what's been said to me. I never offer medical advice to anyone for good reason. Um, But also, I am worried about the unintended consequences of the cures. A very famous sufferer of this disease, uh, who I was lucky enough to interview and meet a couple of times, was Dame Hilary Mantel, the late great author of, of Wolf Hall, amongst other books. And she talked very, very candidly about the cures, the so-called cures, because there aren't any yet. This is the same number of women, at least, in the world who have uh, the same number of people who have diabetes. We have nowhere near the same level of research or treatment plans. The cures can make you worse. So, you know, it's a real gamble. And I think just a broader answer to your question about my interest in this area is I don't think we understand women. I mean, I think that's actually some of the some of what's at the heart of it. I don't think we've developed a, a serious enough, cohesive enough way of understanding how women's bodies work, and the, and the the medical profession reaches the ends of roads with us. And that is kind of steeped in in history in a way, in terms of looking at you know cadavers even, or looking at you know men were the kind of the, the people that were tested, you know, medicine would be tested on through, you know, through history and, and, and looked at through their diseases. So I guess women are late to the party, in, you know, in terms of being paid attention to in, in that area. Certainly, you know, it's like 50, 60 years. Um, yes. And we we talk about the menopause a lot on this podcast. And yes. obviously, you know that a third of medical schools in this country don't have a day or even half a day talking about the menopause, something that affects 50%, 51% of the population and will affect them for sometimes 10 years, is not even discussed. Well, I also think the way that women have to find information for themselves, you know, we saw grappling around in the dark with a spoon and a a candle. That's how how it feels sometimes. You know, I I recently tried the coil, the Mirena coil, uh, a hormonal coil for those who, who ask if it was copper or that. And I, you know, I've had a a very difficult experience on it. That doesn't mean it doesn't work for some people. I I tried it. 
because the doctor said it really can help some women with your conditions. And I thought, do you know what? And they said it really well intentioned. Uh, and I, I tried it and it went really, really wrong for me emotionally, mood wise. And I mean, I can say a bit more on that, but actually I think the other side of not understanding women is not preparing them well enough for what to do when something doesn't work. So, you know, there can be suggestions and in my case, they're running out fast, but there can be suggestions of what can work. But then what do you do when it doesn't work? And I've really lent on, I know we berate social media. I know we uh, find a lot of the issues with it and they're valid. But I have lent on women who I don't know to tell me some of their wisdom and, and not have to go, if you like, down the traditional routes at the moment in terms of talking to doctors. You know, it's it's very difficult in terms of aftercare. That's why you know, when you look at the NHS's priorities when it comes to pregnancy, and it is related, postnatal care in this country is one of the problems. They've actually got a term for it in the NHS, where it basically is is so difficult to get better and to improve. It's not been left, but it, but birth and safe birth has been prioritised. And you understand that. But I would say post-anything care with women is this yawning gap. And that obviously is is a difficult um, thing to, to to kind of look back and go why okay why do we get to this stage now we have to hopefully improve that you know society needs to look at that governments need to look at that is enough being done you speak to people the decision makers the movers the shakers we talk about the women's health um, is it a committee is it a body what well, I, I know it's it's yeah there's a there's, there's a women's health task force task force. A commission yeah is is enough being done do you think to address and redress history in this area? Well, I suppose on a policy level, yes, there have been some steps forward, um, for sure. There are, and we've, we've reported on them. And there's research being done to improve women's lives. You know, even just as I speak to you today, they think they've come across what might be the cause of morning sickness, for instance. Um, I'm not just making it about pregnancy, but that just happens to be in the news today. Of course, there are advances happening. But I still think there is a reticence to quite comprehend how women's lives fit together across the ages and what is best needed. And, you know, the very fact that we don't have gynaecologists in this country for ourselves, um, and that would take in through to menopause and beyond. You know, wouldn't it be incredible to have a relationship with somebody during your life that really, I mean, they don't have to be the exact same person, but, you know, just just a broad discipline that could hold you as a woman and explain, based on other women, what had been going on as well as the evidence and the research that has been done, even though there's a paucity of certain bits of research. Mm. What does work for you? You've talked about speaking to other people on social media. Well, I... I mean, Gabby, we're talking at a really bad point and I've got to laugh uh, because if I don't, I mean, I don't know what I'll do. I'll, uh, but I am, um, in terms of, I'll just cry. But I I think I'm at, I'm at a place now, Gabby, where I, I think for me, having been on hormones to have our second child for the best part of two and a half years, and now just gone back to work, had the coil put in straight away. I was like, right, need to get this in, need to get it settled, can't cope with the pain want to go and have a full life again and it's gone wrong um i'm just trying to give my body a bit of a break um you know exercise has become really key for me 
diet. Um, I've stripped out things that are inflammatory. Um, I, I'm just trying to. Are they working as exercise and and uh, diet? exercise is it's great to it's great for your mind. It's great to feel stronger post a baby. Our baby is ten and a half months old. Our daughter, but no, it's not. You know, I have not the panacea, obviously. Yeah. yeah. It, it, so, where to go to next is genuinely something I'm I'm working on. So we're talking off off the shelf painkillers. Are they are they enough? Uh, so I yeah, I mean there is a couple that you can get prescribed just for period pain, but I've been on them. They're like old mates. I've been on them since I was eleven, and I've sort of actually just stopped taking them now. I put heat on my body, which helps, um, and I've tr- just tried acupuncture. I had my first session yesterday. I can't say if there's any impact, but there there are some early studies to show that, that those types of studies that the, the medical world would take notice of. And some women have said to me that that's really helped them. Um, and then I've got a list on my phone that I, I'm going to do one thing at a time. So at the moment, it is changing my diet and uh, exercise and acupuncture and, and heat, as I've always done. I have a wheat bag that my good friend made for me, a beautiful uh, thing that I put in the microwave. Um, so I'm trying to de-stress my body from all of the, the hormones. While you're pregnant, presumably the pain dissipates oh, a little bit, doesn't it? It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm skipping about, even though I'm tired or I might have morning sickness. Uh, preg- pregnancy is, 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 is never cured it, as we've said, but yes. And breastfeeding. Oh my gosh. When people have said to me, oh, you're going to breastfeed again? This is for a second. I was like, yeah, no periods. I mean, obviously great for bonding and all of that, but I have a completely different relationship. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, when the menopause comes, that presumably would also be potentially a time to rejoice for you. You know, Gabby, my really limited understanding of the menopause, and I say that because I have listened to to people like yourself. I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts. I've, I've read things. I've obviously interviewed people for women's that. My my kind of what I would say, though, before all of that, my basic understanding was, yeah, your period stopped. But I know a load of other things. Yeah. So, um, But listening I'm, to I'm, your symptoms, I think there'd be a decent swap. <laughs> I think it would be in some ways. So I, I have had women write to me over the years. Um, and thank you for anyone who whoever has just to try and help, which is so kind of you. And, and where I can, I, I try if I can. Um, and doing things like this and talking like this, I think is important um, is, you know, I I have been told it can be a very good situation for my my condition. Hearing you talk about the the, the crippling pain, the you know the the all consuming kind of pain, and how it, it it is pretty much your your whole adult life really, and that you know those few days a month where you're not experiencing it, it's amazing to imagine you doing the job that you do, where you have to be so um, sharp, so focused on it, and dealing with that at the same time. I, I guess it becomes your normalcy and people with pain obviously live with pain and it becomes their their routine. But how do you get through those days when, you know, you've got somebody sitting in front of you who's, you know, almost as sharp as you, <laughs> ready to oh, give no. you a run for your money? Many, many give me a run for money. That's that's the joy of it. Um, well, you know what? I was thinking about your world and, and you since you got in touch. And I'm a big fan of yours, Gabby. I really am. You've done so much. And very, very kind of you. No, but you've been so visible. And, and I was thinking about it because I remember thinking about the fact that you're standing up a lot and you're outside and I sit in a studio a lot. And, and that is genuinely where I've ended up. I haven't tailored things as, I, as I've gone to think oh, I'm not very well and Blah, blah, blah. I, I have, you know, I, I have been outside a lot for broadcasting, especially during the Brexit years on my old show on Five Live. 
I think I was on a, in a tent on College Green for about three of the years. Um, so, so, but, but I do suffer with quite poor circulation during the pain as well. So I think some of it I've learned to disassociate from my body, genuinely. Um, and, and that was actually quite good training for IVF. Where And I find my job is quite, although stressful and adrenalizing, and I'm being told by people adrenaline is not the best for an inflammatory condition and what's seen as an autoimmune disorder, uh, but isn't officially classified. Uh, but for me, it focuses my mind. It distracts me. Um, but I'm not sure I could stand up for hours on end like you seem to. I hope you've got a chair somewhere. Um, you know, there's an extra level of effort sometimes when there's, you know, a different terrain and you're in that. But it does make me grateful for having a largely studio based job. But Newsnight always began with you having to do a few, you know, stand, stand, up, link. stand yeah. up, walk across the studio, do all of that. And, you know, there were some days where I was just thinking, I don't really want to walk across the studio right now. I just want to sit. I don't think I ever did put a hot water bottle under the desk, um, mainly because I wasn't that organised. And, and, you know, we were usually sort of settling the last guest about, you know, 10 minutes before whatever was going on. But, you know, um, there were some nights where I just thought, I don't really feel like doing that. But you'd, I did it. Um, and I find, I find my work so all-consuming that I don't think about anything else while I'm doing it. And that's another reason why I also have always liked live broadcasting. Mm. Better than anything pre-recorded. I'm with you on that one. And does that mean that we won't see you back on a regular TV slot? I know you're doing a Bloomberg show, aren't you? Um, I was doing, yeah, just before. Um, that was the last. That was the last part of what I was doing just before I came back. I came on maternity leave, and now I only went back to work. I think eight weeks ago at the BBC. No, no, I, I, I've definitely got some plans for TV in the new year. Um, I would, I would love to do that. I left. I was at Woman's Hour and Newsnight actually at the same time for for a period, and then I, and then I left that. And I felt um, it was the right time for me. You know, I'd been there three and a half years, uh, and I'd learned a great deal. And there were some years to be there during the political agenda, uh, so I I was ready for a change. And uh, I learned a lot through the Bloomberg interview series, just a one on one. I really like that uh, global element to it, reaching an American audience, working with an American uh, brand. So, um, no, but there's, you know, I did a, a I did a, a special with, um, I was actually newly pregnant, but couldn't tell anyone, but I, I got an exclusive interview with Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. And we, we did that as a TV and a radio special. Um, and so, you know, more exclusive, more things like that are, are definitely what I'd like to focus on as well as my radio career. I miss you on Newsnight though. So, I mean, reconsider. If, although, by the sounds <laughs> of it, Newsnight is potentially not going to be what it was, is it? If, if, I've just, yeah, I've been catching up. I've just been yeah. off for a week. So, it yeah, does sound like yeah. it's going to change. It does. It does. But um, but you you are great on TV and, and great on radio, which is not an easy thing. You know, some people just kind of find one of them is their natural home. Do you, do you miss it at all? Do you miss the visual part of broadcasting? Or is that a pain in the backside? Well, now, I mean, look at us. We're even doing this in vision, aren't True. we? Every, every element of it is is visual. Gone are the days. I remember starting out on LBC. Um, I did the overnight shift for a week and then did Sunday afternoons uh, for, for a few years there. And, you know, we were never in vision. No. I, I, start, I mean, I'm a lot older than you, but I started out on breakfast radio. The idea of going in at four in the morning and having to worry about what my hair was like, you know, <laughs> I, I barely managed to kind of get some clothes on because, there were, you know, there wasn't such a thing as a phone camera, a camera on a phone. So, um, yeah, to gosh, um, it, it is when I look at some of the breakfast shows now, which are practically recorded, aren't they? They're practically like a TV yeah, show. Yeah, we are. Yeah. And we've had people not know that. And we do tell them, but they've not somehow got the message and they do look quite... <laughs> 
aghast at what's going on with all these cameras. And, you know, it's funny, when I did first go over to Newsnight, I, I remember a um, family member saying, because I've got this tendency when somebody's saying something to me to, to actually react, you know, um, and, I, and I think I was doing this. I do this sort of <laughs> what face? And, and it's very much, it is from, I suppose, my, my radio show where I really feel I can be myself and I wanted to take that with me to TV because they aren't the same discipline. And uh, one of one of my family said, "You do know we can see you when you do this face." And I was like, "Yes, yes, I am quite aware of that." And they're like, "It's quite a face." And I realised that people possibly, you know, I then learned there's a bit of a grammar to TV. But I did keep it because I thought that is that. I think if you can be as close to your, I feel if you can be as close to yourself on air and off air, it's it's a good thing. Um, I know there's a performance element, and you have to say and yeah. ask things that aren't necessarily what you're even you know, you would naturally go to at that point. But uh, I quite like that. I also remember my mum ringing me after an early broadcast on Newsnight during lockdown. And she said, Emma, we can see the back of your hair. I don't know what you're going to do about it because I've always just cared about the front. <laughs> and then did go for the first time in my life to an online, you know, followed an online tutorial as to how to do my own hair. So you no just dry the front and then just leave the back to go... <laughs> brush it up a bit and, and worry about it later. So so that was a rude awakening as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, my mum generally just tells me what I've been wearing so that she can kind of show that she's watched at least a minute. So, oh, lovely coat. And I, she hasn't seen a minute of it. She's literally just gone. She's wearing camel. Um, let's move on. Uh, what are your family, what, what are your family think of your your career and how much you've achieved and you, you the awards you won early in your career and those kind of being on hot lists and you know best newcomer and those you you've won so many awards it's incredible I don't know if you have a, a gallery or a room somewhere no. in your house that has that keeps your awards but what did they what did they make of your incredible ascent well I mean I think you know I I've I've been with my husband since university and we're we're very we're very close and we as in in terms of I think when you grow up with someone like that we've supported each other pre-children for a long time you know because we were together from a young age we've had a lot of life before the children so I think us building ourselves as in careers and as people it's felt quite uh organic in that way you know they I mean I think he thinks that the, the industry we're in sort of has lots of opportunities to congratulate itself uh, and also as 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 a mancunian i think you know i could sort of also could keep myself on the ground I fairly hope, grounded uh, in, the, in that yeah exactly um, but there are some things which you know feel feel great and and you know the 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 radio awards what were the sony's and winning that for five live as best presenter and also then for women's hour meant it meant a lot you know you you put you put your back into it and you you know your craft and you want to hone it and and do the best and when it's at its very best i remember you know a, a, an interview i was particularly happy to to get because it was such a rarity was was kate bush you know and kate bush was having all this incredible renewed success because of of a song that had gone to number 1 years and years earlier and she doesn't do interviews and anyway long story short i i asked i wrote another note and i knew she liked uh, what I did, which was lovely, but also Woman's Hour. And, and she said yes. And when she, when introducing our conversation that morning, said pre-recorded it, I just felt like I was giving the listeners a gift, you know, and that's the the loveliest feeling. There are lots of mornings when I come on and I've got to do a really intricate interview like I did last week with the, the head of Ofsted, you know, the chief inspector of England schools. 
and there's been some really difficult terrain to cover. That's not a morning where you feel like you're giving anyone a gift. You're doing your accountability work. But it's it's lovely to get sometimes uh, something like that, which which brings it all together. And it's great for the team. How much of the criticism that the BBC gets on almost daily basis from various parts of the media and accountability, you would say as well, that the BBC has to um, adhere to and quite rightly, you know, in certain respects. How much of that affects you in terms of the feeling of defensiveness? Because what you do, I think, is at the very heart of the BBC's remit, you know, and um, and people would be devastated if, you know, the the, the next year they said, right, we're going to cut back a few things at woman out, woman's house going, you know. And remember when a few years ago when they tried to get rid of BBC Radio 6 um, <laughs> and the Asian Network and people were kind of aghast that these things would go. Um, you know, it's one of the jewels in the crown, clearly. But how, how much of that affects you personally and how much do you feel the need to defend the BBC? I mean, I think it's important to to have accountability and I think it's important to also understand what's real criticism and really important criticism and what's not. And, I, I you know, there's a lot of noise at the moment. And for instance, for me, if there's uh, some criticism online about a particular interview, let's say, uh, there's, there's, I mean, there's a few I could name from recent weeks. I like to check if the person who's criticising, if I've seen it, because I don't actually look at a lot of social media anymore and I've pretty much come completely off Twitter or X, as it's called now. Um, I actually find a lot of the time that the individual hasn't listened to the interview or hasn't listened to the content. And then I'm not interested at all. Um, so I calibrate it. I used to be a media correspondent. I used to be a technology correspondent. And uh, at, the, at the Telegraph, uh, I worked there for seven years. I wasn't that role for the whole time. I think I've got a way of reading the news and in particular the media coverage, which will allow me relatively quickly to understand if it's a real problem or if it's not a real problem. And that's sort of how I come at it. And I think for me, that's that's a, that's a healthy way to be on it. And I don't feel it's my job to defend the BBC. Uh, I feel it's my job to do the best job possible. But there are occasions where something has been completely misrepresented and I'll always try and correct the record um but no I don't feel that overall that's my role um and I also obviously at times I'm a citizen who appreciates the BBC consumes the BBC and wants it to be as good as possible Mm. so I do come at it in a range of a range of ways which I hope is you know, I, I'm also aware that my literacy, my media literacy is very good. Mm. A couple of friends have said to me, I sometimes, they sometimes wish I, you know, wrote something or shared something at times about how to read the news, how to scan it, how to think about it. And I know it sounds quite technical, but um, it does allow me to... I think to, it's more uh, relevant it, than ever, that kind well, of information. It, yeah, and there's a charity, there's a few charities dedicated to that with children. And I think I'd like to give some attention to that because I think knowing what's what and how to... How to weight the influence of certain things is important. Well, I have I have two 18-year-olds and so I, I'm having these conversations quite a lot with them about things that they bring to me and I ask them where the source is and, you know, how they've found this information. And 
you know, they're not trained journalists. They didn't, you know, they they obviously do source work in their history A level and things like that, but they don't necessarily relate it to what they're bringing uh, in the, into the kind of the house in terms of a discussion. And I, th- I do think, and they have those conversations, you know, through their education and things, but I do think there is something needed that is an easier kind of access or a portal that people can go, but this is, you know, and I know the BBC now obviously has Verify and it does deliver stories, I think, through the Verify prism quite a lot, doesn't it, nowadays? You know, you, I see those more and more. I mean, I maybe, you know, it's not everybody's answer, but I, whenever there's a, an interview of mine and and, you know, they're not, all the time, but the ones that go viral for various reasons. There are journalists who get in touch with me or via the BBC press office and they want to comment, you know. And I, somebody once said of me, she refuses to come to her own defence. And I thought it was a, a really good description because it's it's the national record. You go and listen to it. Mm. I did what I did in that interview. And if I didn't think something was okay, I'll come back on air the next day because I'm on air every day, or Fridays in the week. And I'll say it Mm. or I'll be told it or there'll be a program called feedback and I'll go on that. Or, you know, the BBC and my ability to do my job um, also offers me ample opportunity to be criticised and to be engaged with. But, I, I, you know, the interview stands and if it didn't stand, we'd pull it and there'd be a whole storm. Yeah. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Changing tack slightly, uh, we've discussed, we've dipped into IVF uh, a little bit through throughout this this chat. But you said uh, in an interview that it, it was an isolating process, even with a partner. And you've just there beautifully described the journey of you and your your husband through, from university, which I think you know it, having that long standing relationship before you go through something like IVF is really important. If you know you would never want to go down that road if you'd only been with somebody six months, you know, because it is such a, a huge. Um, step and a huge decision to make but you felt isolated at, at times yeah I think I felt isolated even from myself you know I um, I began it just the second time around and it was a much so I should say the first IVF came at the end of two and a half or two years or so of trying and was one round and it wasn't pleasant but you sort of the first time you do anything you sort of just get through it yeah there's a novelty to, to the whole yeah. thing isn't there mm. and then you hope it's going to give you what you want and in my case, amazingly, it did. Um, I think by round five this time, you know, I sort of had a new life. It, w- it was a new job, actually, alongside everything else. And uh, we still obviously were raising a little boy. So, um, e- you know, sort of going into toilets, injecting myself, doing things at a certain time, taking mind-altering drugs, 
you know, walking on holiday and not feeling like myself. You, you know, you, you go into, and I am no athlete, but you go into what I imagine I've had athletes describe to me as a kind of tunnel vision mode, right? Which is, I've gone again, so this is what I've got to go through. And I got really good at gaming my old reactions to things when I wasn't on drugs. So I'd be like, okay, normal me would not have such a strong reaction to that. So let's pretend that's what I feel about this. So it's really knackering as well, Mm -hmm. augmenting yourself Mm. quite regularly uh, because your reactions are no longer the ones you would normally have. And some of them were, uh, and some of them weren't. Sometimes I couldn't feel, I couldn't react to things. I just sort of felt deadened. Um, so I think I was isolated from myself and, and, and because I've also spent a lot of time in pain when I've just gone back to the gym and I'm working with a woman because I'm trying to bring my, um, diastasis recti back together in my stomach. You know, she said to me, um, she's a postnatal specialist. She's brilliant. And she said to me, um, Emma, does this hurt? Do you know, like holding something? And I was like, oh yeah. And she went, you've not expressed it. And I thought, yeah, that's that's IVF and that's endometriosis, where I have just decided to be quite expressionless about some pain. And she's like, you you are going to need to tell me that in a, you know, because then I go off and do my own training. So I'm trying to learn some new stuff. And and I think that's quite sim- symptomatic of how isolated you even become from your own emotions. emotions. Yeah. Uh, did you, the, so the first time was just the one round and you yes. had your son. Um, so that, that was quite a kind of straightforward, as, as, as straightforward as I yes. guess can be. That was quite a straightforward process. Was there ever a time after those, those, those next rounds that came where you felt like you were going to give up and it wasn't for you? Yes. Um, so the fifth round, I got pregnant. And this was an amazing breakthrough because everything had been going wrong and I lost the baby. And I genuinely didn't think it was allowed in the universe that you could have a miscarriage after five rounds of IVF. Mm. And I know the odds, mm. you know, I know them logically. Uh, there's no difference once you're pregnant by your IVF. So then you enter the, the regular female pregnant community. And I was so shocked and so heartbroken that I sat on the floor in the living room and decided I had to write about it while it was happening. And I also decided to go on the wheel, Michael McIntyre's programme, but I made some weird choices on that rug because I was like, I want to go into something a bit silly and fun. And there were a few other sort of life things. I'd like booked a nice thing I hadn't been committing to. I just sort of thought I've got to throw a few things up in the air. Um, but the main thing was I'm going to write about it. And the reason I wrote about it is because I don't think many people have the type of job where you hope you would keep it a woman's hour if you're going through IVF and you're honest about that. And I'm sick and tired of people writing about it when it went well. Uh, and I wanted to capture the feeling live of how it felt with it going wrong. And the reason I've stopped, said that story in response to, were well, you not going to go again, was that I thought that was it, actually. Um, I didn't write it like that. But that's where I was. And I can only say this, I can't say this enough. I've written um, about it when I was, I was doing my newsletter on, on Substack, which was called Trying. And it was about lots of trying in life. And I think life is an exercise in trying. But I talked about IVF fairies and having a friend. And I happened to meet a woman who lived on my street who had eight rounds in the end for her second child. 
And she happens to also be a doctor, not in this field. And we went for a walk. We we walked when we were allowed to during lockdown. So a lot of this was during uh, the pandemic, which was also very isolating to be going through IVF during that time. Um, and obviously it was paused for some time as well, because I did it uh, all within an NHS hospital, which is where I'd had my first. Um, and then I wasn't eligible for any more NHS treatment. So paid, but I stayed in the NHS, um, which I, you know, I don't know if I've actually said that before, but some people ask me, so that's the answer. And she said to me, you've got to go again. And I said, no, I, I just, I'm all right now. I, I'm done. Like, I just actually don't want to do this anymore. And she, she said, no, it's, it's not an option. You've got to go another time. And, you know, friends are quite nervous, aren't they, coming mm. off the fence sometimes. Mm, mm. It's a bit like if you break up with someone, you should never say what you really thought of that guy. Straight that away. <laughs> They're going to get back with them and then you're in the doghouse. But she said, medically, she used to do a lot of this about the logic medically. She said, you, you now know you can do it again. So you've got to try again because you've got to do what you did that time. And I could see that. And it was really annoying because she kind of defeated me uh, with a bit of logic. And so I went back in the tunnel and that was the daughter that is. Wow. That was that pregnancy. So genuinely, when I thank her for our daughter, you know, I, our daughter was made by a man called Tarek, <laughs> a bit by my husband, me and my friend Katie. <laughs> so I thought you were going to say, because my, my, Ruben and Lois were made by Talwa. And when you said Tar, I was like, oh my gosh, our children were made by the same man, but no. Uh, so Tarek, <laughs> Tarek, the lady down the road, and a bit of your husband and a bit of you. Um, <laughs> yeah, a lot of me. Uh, and a, bit of yeah, a, lot of, a, lot, so, a lot of you. Um, it is, it is, a, it is a, people who haven't been through IVF. And I had read a, one of my best girlfriends has had three children, naturally, all of them kind of accident pregnancies, you know, including a set of twins. And um, she knew nothing when I was trying to explain to her. She, she, at the very beginning of IVF, when I was going through it, she thought that everything was coming from somebody else. She didn't know. She was, no, no, I said, they're Ken, it's Kenny's sperm and, you know, they're my eggs and this is what happens. And, um, and so I think if you're not, if you haven't gone into any fertility treatment, people just, you close your mind to it, don't you? And you move on. And so people perhaps don't always know how to have those conversations with somebody like you who's gone through many rounds is that if you somebody's listening now is there any advice or, or guidance you would give to family and friends who are around somebody going through fertility treatment well i would try and find someone who is going through it that's what i, I would say that i know that doesn't quite answer but i have an endo warrior friend i have my ivf friend you know i i don't think you always need to do that in life but there are some circumstances where matching your experience really can't be replaced and I think if you are supporting someone, but you can't quite relate to them, I just think, you know, turning up for them, distracting them, letting them talk if they want to, but also just doing some of the pleasurable things for them in life, doing some stuff proactively for them is lovely. Not asking them what they need, because you're in, you're in, a, you're in a tunnel when you're in it. And, um, you know, I would also say be sensitive about pregnancy announcements. Mm, yeah. That can they can, they can if, hit, if that's relevant. Yeah, they can hit hard sometimes, can't they? And uh, yeah, you, you, yeah. you want to be happy for your friends, but and your family, but it can be, it can be hard to to find that. Um, all the time we've been chatting, Dr. Nigat Arif has been listening in, and I'm sure she's been fascinated by many of the things you have talked about. I'm delighted to say she's on the podcast today, and uh, she has written a lot about uh, women's health and especially the areas we've discussed. Uh, so I'd like to welcome her into the the midpoint. Thank you so much for having me. What a fascinating conversation! And I was nodding my head along, going, "Yeah, 
yeah, she's right. She's right about this. One of the things I want to pick up that Emma has talked about, her diagnosis coming later, and for lots of reasons that happens a lot with, a, you know, a lot of women in the discussions that I've, I've heard. Would there be a benefit to earlier diagnosis for a lot of women? We've got to look at endometriosis and adenomyosis also being cousins of each other. So adenomyosis is when cells go into the muscular wall of the womb. Endometriosis, as Emma had explained really um, fantastically, are cells similar to the lining of the womb that get deposited in the pelvis and they cause these endometriotic lesions. Now, the youngest that I've diagnosed in my clinic is actually sort of 14, 15 years old, but that took us a while to justify her symptoms. And I'm a clued up doctor who does women's health, and I've been doing this for well over a decade that I was able to say, I think this is endometriosis. The data has shown time and time again, if we intervene earlier, then actually what it shows is, is that later on complications such as pregnancy related issues, uh, pain, uh, time missed off school, education, sports activities, uh, limiting girls' hopes and dreams, all of that is encapsulated by making sure that they thrive, not just survive throughout their menstrual years. And obviously, uh, once you get a diagnosis, you know, you, I suppose psychologically, you, you know what you're dealing with. So, so that would help. So what's got to happen then? You know, cause, because if it's a laparoscopy that, that eventually gives you that diagnosis, that's, that's quite a big intervention, isn't it, for a lot of women? You've just asked me one of the biggest questions, what's got to happen to be able to get that early diagnosis? And I have to say, I don't have an easy answer for you at all. Laparoscopy is the end stage. And obviously, if I've got a, a 12-year-old who started her periods, and we're getting girls younger, 9, 10-year-olds who are starting their periods. And at the start, you don't know what your pattern is because they can be irregular. But if you're getting pain, that can actually be normalized within the household conversation. Sometimes we see it as being a generational thing. So if the mother has had painful periods, the grandmother, the aunts, they'll just say, well, put up with it. We went through it. And so it's silenced quite quickly. So the young girl who's just started on her journey might not even know that that's an issue or that's a problem until it becomes observed by others around them and it could be the school teacher that says that's not you know normal or the fact that your studies are becoming affected or the fact that she might want to withdraw herself from activities that are going on in her daily life and so what happens is piecing that jigsaw uh, bits together is reliant on the person experiencing their symptoms and also validating or not gaslighting them to say that this isn't actually real this is something that might be in their head and they're over they're I, was, I, get, I get this a lot where I actually get um, young girls who know the game quite quickly about their pain because they don't want to be seen as drama queens. We've got all these labels that we have in our society. She's a drama queen. She's attention seeking. Oh, yeah, that's just her. That's how she behaves on every monthly basis. So when it comes to coming to see the doctor, you might not even get a doctor that does women's health or be having thinking along the lines of adenomyosis, which is even less known about, or endometriosis, which we know you, one in 10 women experience this. And Emma said really uh, you know, poignantly earlier that it's on a par to the diagnosis of diabetes. And then the next thing is, where's the test? Well, you can't do a blood test. You can't do a hair sample. You can't do an ultrasound scan. Well, you can, but actually it doesn't always pick up early disease. And laparoscopy is way down the line because that's interventional surgical. So they put a camera in, keyhole, through the belly button to have a look at the tummy. And here's the kicker, actually, which we don't tell people enough about. Even on laparoscopy, you can miss microscopic endometriotic lesions. So you go through all of that and the girl is told or, you know, the young woman is told, 
oh no, it's not endometriosis, we didn't find it. But then years down the line, when the endometrial lesions have got bigger and bigger, or her fertility is affected, that's when we go, oh yes, it was. So it's, it's, it's treatments and investigations and piecing the information together. And we're still lacking, you know, we're centuries behind when it comes to women's health. We know drug companies like to, you know, make a lot of money. It feels like there's there's gold in them hills if they can be bothered to go and do the research and come up with a some kind of drug that's going to help people who are in so much pain and discomfort. Right, let's move on slightly because Emma, um, we discussed potentially the menopause might be a time in Emma's life where, you know, her pain uh, goes away and uh, obviously there might be other symptoms that come and cause issues. But um, the, the one thing I want you to talk about, if you will, is whether or not women who've gone through IVF, because I, I read this when I, I was about I think 47, 48 when I got perimenopausal symptoms and women who've gone through IVF often start those symptoms earlier because they've kind of intervened with their hormones in a way. That was kind of how I read it. Is that is that true? Is Does that have kind of medical grounding and, and research into it? So we do know from the small data that we do have that women who've had, say, high levels of progesterone, because that's normally what they, you know, the injections that we give women in order to allow them to fall pregnant or the other hormones that might have adjusted themselves. It's also, I think we forget the uh, emotional toll that it takes or, uh, or the mental toll that it takes along because that also means that your stress hormones like your cortisol, your melatonin, which is your sleep hormone, or your serotonin, which is your happy hormone, all of those other factors are really affected. So we do know that uh, a group of women can go through earlier menopause. We also find that one in 100 women can go through what's known as premature ovarian failure as well. So that's another impact to where the ovaries don't make enough hormones. The natural transition, so far we don't have conclusive studies, but we know that the national average of perimenopause so that's a natural transition of going through the change can be about 43 to 45 those that have gone through so IVF and this isn't for everybody so I'm just giving generic numbers here but that could be about 38 39 or 40 so seeing at 38 you're going through perimenopause and saying you're too young isn't actually true we also find this the case being um, with ethnic minority communities. So we have one study, which is a SWAN study in 2020, which showed that actually black and Asian community women, they actually go through perimenopause or early changes of the menopause about five years than their white counterpart. So I don't, I think we've got to get away from the fact that it's something that only happens to 50-year-olds. Yeah, exactly. 50-year-olds <laughs> yeah. and that's yeah. it. Um, but uh, it's all about the fact that we've got to have a wider view of the symptoms. Right. And the um, the thing I, I kind of in the introduction to this podcast today said I was going to talk to you about, so I must, is thyroid. The thyroid seems to come into kind of sharper focus and more prominence with women in midlife and thyroid activity does. Um, what What's going on? And I know it's regulated by hormones, but explain to us what's going on with the thyroid in midlife. We do know that there are two things that happen. One is, is that we naturally transition through perimenopause. And as we take 40 being the average number, then women are twice more likely to get a thyroid condition. There are two types. There's either an underactive thyroid or known as hypothyroidism or an overactive which is hyperthyroidism and it's essentially the the thyroid hormone which is produced by our thyroid gland and these hormones whether it's estrogen which is decreasing and progesterone which is fluctuating as part of our perimenopausal picture or whether it's um, underactive or overactive thyroid so if you look at thyroid disease in particular we know that in the majority of it, particularly if you're looking at the underactive thyroid picture, that it's autoimmune and it's our own immune system that starts attacking the gland. 
We don't really know entirely why that happens, but we do find that it happens a little bit more as a woman is transitioning. But we, it's like that chicken and egg scenario, Gabby. We don't know what comes first. Was it because there was an underactive thyroid anyway and then your perimenopausal symptoms came along? Or was it because perimenopause pushed you into underactive thyroid? Because all these hormones are connected with our, our, our brain and how our adrenal glands work. But the interesting thing that we need to notice about underactive thyroid um, or thyroid disease and perimenopause, the symptoms overlap quite a lot. And I have my own theory. Well, it's not my own theory, it's backed up by research, but we do know <laughs> that um, the immune system uses estrogen as an immune modulator. So the fact that women are more prone to getting autoimmune conditions, so thyroid conditions, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, We've got to look at these conditions and say, hang on, why is our immune system attacking our own joints and our own cells around our, and our own organs around our body when we're going through the menopausal um, change? So we've got to look at estrogen, understand estrogen. But for too long, women have been made absolutely petrified over their mm. own hormone. Estrogen is going to be awful for you. It's linked to breast cancer. It's linked to womb cancer. So we've always never gone there because of the dangers of it, but not understanding how fabulous it is and how important it is. Um, Emma talked about inflammatory processes. It's such an important part. We know estradiol actually reduces inflammation in our body. So estrogen is so important to us. And you've listened to, to Emma's story, Dr. Niga. I'm sure you've met women who've who, you know had similar experiences, no experiences exactly the same. Um, and she's doing all she can. I mean, she's, she's got her checklist at the moment, which uh, is uh, acupuncture and exercise and diet. Is there anything that you're listening in that you would add? I just wanted to add the whole conversation around endometriosis and perimenopause and menopause. So you go through menopause, which is one year without a period, but you do have this decade before that where you can have erratic periods and erratic fluctuations of estrogen and progesterone. Now, the one thing when we link and think about endometriosis is that we know that estrogen or exposure to estrogen can make it worse. That's why when Emma was talking about in her pregnancy, it was wonderful, although she had the morning sickness and, and the throes of pregnancy, actually the stopping of the periods was the fact that it made her pain a lot better. So the theory is, is that the endometriotic lesions are air quotations mark fed by estrogen. So when you have gone through your hormonal journey and you're in the postmenopausal phase, then actually giving hormone replacement back, if it's counteracted by progesterone, means that A, your periods have stopped, and secondly, that the lesions don't grow any further. That's the theory. The other option is, is that hysterectomy. Unfortunately, I'm appalled at the fact that still, when it comes to women's health, that when we don't know anything about the womb or we haven't researched, we're just like, yeah, whip that organ out because that's it. That's the only cure when actually it's not a cure or treatment that we offer women but we also do know from women who've had a hysterectomy due to endometriosis and it's when they've had the womb removed then giving them estrogen and progesterone means that again they don't get periods but also it stops their endometriotic lesions that's not entirely um, the case for everybody we need to twinker and tweak the doses a lot but with endometriosis, it always depends on that exposure to estrogen, which is a key component of HRT. And it has to be so individually made. I've got a lot of patients that I look after in my NHS practice who've got hysterectomy and have endometriosis. And I'm constantly tweaking their estrogen for symptomatic relief. We've also got to think about estrogen as being important for our brain health, our heart health, our bone health, our cardiovascular system. 
So it it is something that a woman is definitely on a journey with for the rest of her mm. life. Um, and we are as a society in understanding, aren't we, this? Because obviously, you know, to some degree, 150 years ago, we didn't live much beyond our, our menopause, did we? So um, so it is, a, yeah, it's a journey, but hopefully one which will um, have greater understanding and acceptance, I think, in the next uh, few years as it's talked about more. So thank you so much for coming on and, and talking to us, Dr. Negat Arif. Thank you. Yeah, it just feels, I mean, you know, in, in some ways it's been quite depressing talking about all of this, Emma, because it feels like there's so much still to do. But having the conversations hopefully will inspire people who work in this area to to really push on with that research. And, you know, that there are young scientists and young doctors out there right now who do want to make a difference for women's health. There are. And I've, I've worked with them. Professor Andrew Horn's one at, um, in the University of Edinburgh. Uh, and he's trying to get fundraising right now for his endo project. And uh, I think it's very difficult to get fundraising. I think, you know, a lot of money goes to uh, the bigger diseases um, and that's been very important. Um, but I think even just raising the understanding can then help, I hope, people like him be able to to get that funding to be able to do the work. So um, I'm very grateful that people are working on it. And I, and I really hope that those who who have the will and have the power can get can get behind it um and I, I you know i just wanted to say about the hysterectomy point you know nobody said that's what i have to do next but that's the that's the journey i seem to sort of be on and also it has helped some women so you know it, it's it's very specific i think the thing to say is when you're unwell you can't really be bothered with any of this you know what i mean like you know you've got to figure whether that's you've got some very difficult menopause symptoms through to what i'm dealing with you know it's it's very very tiring and you don't want it to define you and I work very hard for it not to define me you know and I have a full life and I I try to have as full life as possible I mean I'm also quite tired there's two small people but I think navigating it requires we talked about media literacy but you know health literacy is is really hard work Mm. yeah and and as you said before as well which you described brilliantly it's like having a second job when you're going through something whatever it is be people listening to this who've got other medical conditions that involve just a lot of time and effort to keep going for whether it's appointments or uh, procedures and and it does become almost part of your routine in life mm. and, that, and yeah. that in itself is tough um your um you know brilliant interviewing style emma is is, is much appreciated and, and lauded how do you describe it when you look at your kind of working life how would you describe yourself uh, warm but forensic. <laughs> That's good. I like I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and when you come home, do you take that cloak off? Are you quite good at, at being in a state with your husband that you're not being as yes. forensic? There are le- I mean, especially when I worked at Five Live, there were so many men after a big political interview. Oh, I would like to be married to you. And I thought, oh, come on. Well, I don't want to be married um, to you either. So there we go. Yeah. Well, you know, we've not met yet. Come on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm that different, but I'm not like that all of the time. But I do think, obviously, when I'm, I'm, you know, when I talk to people, I think what is similar and I meet people, I'm not very good at small talk. That is... You know what I mean? Like I'm in the business of conversation. I like to get to it. And if we, you know, we have been at things before and my husband has gone, oh gosh, he's gone into host mode. And, you know, it's it's all very polite. No one's saying what they really think. And I just want to drop an absolute bomb in it and see what happens. And I don't do that all the time. But... How, how's your social life? <laughs> <laughs> 
they cannot be your good friends obviously know that don't they but that but I know exactly what you mean that small talk that just feels like it's going nowhere what do you, do you just shut up do you, do you kind of move away oh I don't know it's and you know there's like through having children you meet lots of new people and you have to be quite good at it you know the quick the quick sort of pickups and and whatever yeah I mean I can fake it I can fake it we could all fake it and sometimes it's absolutely fine it's all you've got energy to do anyway you know it's oh I can't wait until you're on all the school whatsapps honestly this is this is going to be game-changing for all of those whatsapp groups um but yeah no I uh I I feel like sometimes though it's quite good because I'm very one-to-one I think being an only child I like I really like engaging with people and I really like listening I think that's when people talk about what I if they ask me about what I do I think the the biggest skill is listening and hearing what somebody actually said and then following up on that so I think and then I think the other side of that is I'm attentive so yes it can be you know, whatever, but I will remember that you said something to me and then I'll think about it randomly and I might just text you and say, you know, but I'm also a phone call person. Are you? Do you, do you warn yeah. the phone call is coming? Because this is apparently the modern etiquette. We're supposed to text people and say, can I call you? In I know. It's such a lot of effort to call <laughs> now because you have to do a warm up text, check it's okay. <laughs> What's a good then, time to call you? <sighs> also, what is weird when you call someone and they text immediately back, everything okay? And I'm like, just pick up. I mean, and I know they might be in a meeting, but if they can immediately text back, the meeting is not that all-consuming. I think people are scared of conversation. I, I mean, oh, yeah. I, I mean, young people, as you you know, um, they they chat online before the actual conversation. They could do that for months before they actually have a conversation. And the idea that it's so scary to 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 meet in person and have a conversation with somebody is a is a real thing for young people. I know. I mean, I well, I grew up, and she still does it. Um, you know, my mum's got a phone rotor. You know, she's got a bit of a mental list of who needs calling that night. And I've got, you know, she'd sit down and take the clip-on earring off or whatever, and get on the blower. And I, and I, you know, did it did it myself to an extent when I was growing up because we didn't have the phones in quite the same way. So you know, get on the phone, drive everyone mad in the house that had been at school with everyone that day, and then I needed to talk to them all all night. So. Uh, I'm a car. Think... I'm a car phoner because I drive quite a lot. I don't live in the centre of town. I live just a bit out, so I drive a lot. And it'll, I'll go right. I'll call X, Y, and Z on this journey, and not just to take up the journey because I love listening to podcasts and radio. But I know I need to speak to those people. I'd be much more. I'll be much more attentive because nobody else is in the car. Whereas at home, there's distractions around, and you don't have those conversations. Kenny doesn't used to do a lot of driving, taking Ruben long distances for rugby and stuff. And I know he he, he was very kind of almost martyrish about it. You know. I did six hours driving and but I know he loved it because he was doing so many calls and because he, he loves to chat <laughs> yeah. so it was a thing um your next 10 years I'm sure will be huge in you know in your career and and hopefully in your health as well you'll you'll go on a, a journey are you ready for the kind of the 40s and the you know what what's to come down the track do you feel like it's you know midlife and this this period is an exciting thing to be entering into I think you've got to rev back up uh, if you have had kids after that. You know, there's a there's a pre you and a post you. And I I'm, I'm I was remembering us. Forgive me if I get it slightly wrong, but Angelina Jolie said she took some of her toughest film work once she'd finished having her children because she just needed to kind of like kick out all the soft stuff. Having been, and I and I think there's an element to that where I'm ready. You know, having finally completed what I saw as what could be our family. And, you know, that doesn't mean it wasn't complete before. And I'm very sensitive to people still on that road. But having got out of that 
tunnel of IVF, I am really trying to get well because I want to do exactly as you've described and, and, and you know, kick the barn doors in and, and have good fun on the way, right? You yeah. know, it's... But I feel midlife just officially started by coming on this podcast. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's you know, I like things. I, I often think, I don't know if you remember, think this, but when I first went live on Earth at, at the BBC, I had this really naive thing that maybe somebody would just go, you're alive. You're like, <laughs> but instead, you just go in with a load of paper or whatever, the screen, and there's a red light and it's like, boom. And there's no fanfare. And I, and I think sometimes in life, it's nice to have a moment. So I'm going to make this my moment. This is your moment. <laughs> well, hopefully it won't happen to you what happened to Claire Balding when she came on The Midpoint. She swears that morning. She actually came here to my little studio. And on the way, she swears she had her first hot flush um, oh, no. that she'd ever had. She said, I've only had it because I'm coming on this podcast today <laughs> and blamed me. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's quite that powerful. But um, hopefully um, when we chat in you know a few years time, you'll Go. I'm having a great time. It is. It's a brilliant. It's a brilliant period of life. And well, um, and when I said what I said earlier, um, I really meant Gabby. You know, women like yourself being amazing on magazine covers, through to your work, and you know, it's completely changed how that looks and and seems. And I think that that is just you know doing that is really important. So I, I'm really grateful that you you've you've actually spoken about a lot of this. Oh, well, thank you for coming on and being so unbelievably honest, candid, and it's very emotional as well hearing what you've gone through. So um, more power to you and, and keep being that voice because change will happen, I hope. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. My thanks to Emma Barnett for joining me and for being so open and honest about her endometriosis, IVF and journey to motherhood. And as we've heard, she works really hard and I found it interesting to hear how the all-consuming nature of her job can be helpful to take her mind off the pain she's experiencing almost daily. And I really hope she's back on our screens this year and that her new exercise routine and the acupuncture will continue to help her. Thanks as well to Dr. Nigat Arif for her brilliant insights and for continuing to fight for developments in women's health. Do hit follow wherever you usually listen to this podcast to ensure you never miss an episode. And by leaving a rating and a review, not only does it make me very happy, it also helps others to find the podcast too. Thanks again to Emma and Nigat, to Spiritland Creative for producing the podcast and mostly to you for listening. I hope you'll be able to join me again next week. Catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.